Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Amen. Good morning, Hope Chapel. It's good to be together. We're going to begin a new teaching series this morning. We're going to be in the next couple months working our way through John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This morning, we're going to be hearing from 1st John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So please stand with me. Open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture. This is what the Apostle John has recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, church, hear now the, word, the, the words of the one true and living God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, church? Amen. You may be seated. As we begin today, I want to invite you to consider with me uh, just a brief thought experiment. Imagine a young man named Tom, not to be confused with Tom from MySpace. Imagine a young man named Tom who has never been on an airplane before. Tom is afraid of heights, he has heard stories and seen videos of plane crashes, and so Tom is convinced that flying is extremely dangerous. Tom's belief in the danger of flying determines his behavior. So he avoids flying at all costs, and instead he opts for other modes of transportation, like long road trips or maybe even train rides. And so what happens is one day, Tom's close friend, an experienced pilot, named Anthony, offers to help Tom overcome his fear. And so what does Anthony do? He invites Tom to visit the airport where he shows him all the rigorous maintenance and safety procedures that are in place for every plane and every flight. Anthony also presents to Tom uh, statistics demonstrating that flying is actually one of the safest modes of transportation. Now guess what happens? As Tom begins to understand the truth about air travel, his beliefs change. Tom now knows that flying is actually a much safer enterprise than he initially thought. And so this newfound knowledge that Anthony has brought to him influences Tom's behavior. Tom starts to feel more comfortable with the idea of flying, and eventually he books a flight for his next vacation because he's confident in the safety of air travel. So you might ask, what's the point? Well, I think that this little thought experiment illustrates how knowledge of the truth shapes our beliefs 
and how reshaped beliefs in turn shape our behavior. Truth determines beliefs and beliefs determine behavior. Does that make sense? Now, as we open 1 John this morning, I want us to see how John begins this letter with the truth about Jesus. And John does that because he knows that everything else in the Christian life flows downstream from the truth about Jesus. If we're to live the Christian life, if we're to truly be saved, that all depends upon knowing the true Jesus. Now, because we're opening a new series and jumping into a new letter, I need to say a few things by way of background. So first, John, uh, the Apostle John. Church tradition tells us that John was the last of the 12 apostles to die. He lived the longest. Uh, He lived until near the end of the first century. John was probably between 80 and 90 years old when he wrote uh, these letters in, in his gospel. Um, To put that into context, John is probably writing 20 years after uh, Peter and Paul and James have already been martyred. Uh, John has watched all of his fellow apostles, all of his brothers serve Christ and also die for Christ. He's the last man standing. Um, John, at this point, is probably writing to second-generation Christians, maybe even some third-generation Christians. And so he's very much writing as like a spiritual father maybe even a spiritual grandfather. That's why when you read this letter, you'll hear him refer to his readers over and over as my children. And so John has lived through the first century church. He's lived through the early church. And now he's not so much concerned with that. He's kind of turning his attention. He's now burdened for the second century church. Why is he writing? We know that uh, John fled Jerusalem before its destruction in AD 70. And tradition says that he settled in Ephesus. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. So John settles in Ephesus. Uh, That's probably where he writes this letter, probably also his gospel. Um, And he probably wrote this letter to be circulated among the same churches that he identifies in the beginning of Revelation, those seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And because he's in Asia Minor, because he's in modern-day what is modern-day Turkey, but he's writing to a mixed audience. He's not writing to a predominantly Jewish audience anymore. He's writing to a Jewish and Gentile audience in a region of the ancient world that had been Hellenized. And that means that the culture had been shaped by Greco-Roman thought, by Greek philosophy. And the internal and the external evidence suggests to us as modern readers that one of the things that John is doing in these letters, in this letter, is he is defending against false teaching. He's defending against philosophies and ideas which are threatening early Christianity, which are threatening the early church. One of those ideas is an idea called Gnosticism. John is dealing with it in its very early stages. This philosophy, Gnosticism, didn't grow to its full potential until well into the second century, but it began to kind of rear its ugly head late in the first century. And so John is writing to counteract it, to push against it. And this emergent kind of incipient Gnosticism that John is contending with is characterized by a number of features. Uh, One of the features that it's characterized by is a dualism or an idea that there is this distinction 
um, between all of what is made. There's a distinction between the spiritual realm, which it saw as good, and the material realm, like the created world in our bodies, which it saw as evil. We know that's not true because God created everything and he said it was what? Good. And so this dualistic perspective, which began to kind of creep into the early church at the end of the first century, uh, devalued the physical creation, devalued the physical body. And as this kind of pagan thought infected early Christianity, it gave rise to an actual heresy that we call docetism. And this heresy denied the full humanity of Jesus because it denied the incarnation. This heresy said that Jesus may have been fully divine, but he certainly wasn't fully human because that which is fleshly, that which is human, is, is evil and destined for destruction. Gnostics believed in a kind of secret knowledge. That word Gnostic comes from the word for knowledge. And so this philosophy promoted the idea that salvation, whatever salvation we need, could only be achieved by gaining access to this secret knowledge which was confined to a select few. And so this idea undermined um, the message of salvation that, that comes in the gospel to us, right, of, of uh, salvation freely available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And finally, this system of thought undermined Christian living. It undermined uh, personal holiness, because after all, if, if, if your body is disposable and it doesn't really matter what happens to it and it's not good anyways, then it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. We don't have to honor God with our bodies. We can live however we want with our bodies. All that matters is that which is spiritual. And so this whole system of thought was infecting the church, infecting early Christianity, and leading many astray, and leading many to stumble. And so in light of all this, does that make sense? Yes. So in light of all this, John is writing to these Christians late in the first century to remind them and to reassure them. He reminds his readers of the essential truths of the faith, and he reassures those who lack assurance because of all this confusion that's been creeping in. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want to ask, what does John remind his readers about first? This is what he effectively says. The first thing he says is, guys, we know him. We know him. Now, John is going to repeatedly use the word we in these four verses. And when he says we, he doesn't mean me and you as my reader. Rather, he means we, me and my fellow apostles. So the first thing he's going to say about Jesus is, remember, we know him. Look at how he begins in verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Guys, I want you to see that, that right here at the beginning, John is talking about Jesus. Um, as he sets out to correct error and to clear up confusion, John's starting point is Jesus. He is saying to his readers, I want you to know the true Jesus, not the Jesus of Gnosticism, not the Jesus of mysticism. Today, to make this applicable to us, not the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, not the Mormon Jesus, not the Muslim Jesus, arguably not even the Roman Catholic Jesus, the true Jesus, the historical Jesus, the same Jesus he says that we have come to know. 
Notice that John doesn't waste any time with an introduction. You know, normally we read Paul's letters and Paul begins like Paul, an apostle of the Lord, right? To those who are in Rome, grace and peace to you, so on and so forth, right? John doesn't do it. He just gets right to Jesus, comes right out of the gate here in first one. And he has some big things to say about Jesus. Here in this verse, John describes Jesus in two ways. He describes Jesus as that which was from the beginning and as the word of life. Do you see those two things? And as he does so, what John is doing is he is affirming for his readers the full deity of Christ. When you read uh, John's first letter, when you read 1 John against his gospel, against the gospel of John, uh, it becomes very apparent very quickly that John's prologue in his letter here is very similar to almost a condensed version of his prologue in his gospel. We were just in John's gospel for a number of weeks leading up to Easter. I want to just kind of revisit together what John says in his prologue in his gospel in John chapter 1. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to have it on the screen. This is what he says there as he opens up his gospel account. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen, church? Amen. Yes. And so in his gospel account, John goes back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word. And likewise, in this letter, John goes back to the beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning. Both are affirmations of Jesus' divine nature and of, and of Jesus' divine preexistence. Uh, Jesus was not created, but was present at creation. In the beginning was the word, was as in imperfect. It means that Jesus continued to exist. He had continued to exist at the point of creation. John is saying Jesus is God. In his gospel, John starts off, in the beginning was the word. Likewise, in this letter, John starts off, that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. And so in both writings, John opens up referring to Jesus as the logos, as the word. What does he mean by that? Why does he refer to Jesus as the word, as the logos? I think at least three reasons. Because Jesus is the creator behind the universe. Because Jesus is the true embodiment of divine wisdom. And because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's character and will. Let's go through those slowly. Uh, one at a time. Can we do that? <clears throat> Going back to Genesis 1. What's the first thing we read? In the beginning, God 
created. How did God create? He spoke. God create, created by his powerful word, right? And so the word represents the creative power of God. By calling Jesus the word, John highlights that Jesus is not only present at creation, but he is the agent of creation. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. But remember, John is writing to a Greco-Roman, to a, a Hellenized culture, to a Greco-Roman audience. And in Greek philosophy, the, the logos was considered to be the, the reason or divine principle that governs or orders the universe. And, and John plays on that word. He says, oh, yeah, that logos that you guys believe in, hey, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. But in describing Jesus as the word, he's also conveying that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. I read this statement and I thought it was helpful. Jesus is to us what our words are to others. You see, what do our words do for us to others? They reveal to others who we are, right? Our words reveal who we are, what we think, what we want, how to be in relationship with us. Well, that's what Jesus does for God, right? Jesus, when we look at him, he reveals to us the mind and the heart of God. He is the living, breathing, tangible means of communicating between God and man. He is the word of God. Amen? He is the word made flesh. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know God. We look at Jesus and we know exactly who God is. Exactly what God is like. Exactly what God wants. Exactly what God is doing. John is saying. He's the word. Jesus is God. Are you with me? But now I want you to see what he does. What does John sandwich right in between these two clear descriptions of Jesus' deity? Look again at verse 1. Right in between these descriptions of Jesus' deity, John says, that which we heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. And so in between these two descriptions of Jesus' deity, John is highlighting the full humanity of Jesus by focusing on the tangible and experiential aspects of Jesus' life on earth. He appeals to the senses. He appeals to historical interaction. He says, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've looked upon him, we've touched him. Emphasizing the physical reality of Jesus' presence, underscoring his genuine humanity, right? The, 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 the mention, not just of, of I knew him, but we knew him, emphasizes the apostles' firsthand experience with Jesus, implying that he actually lived uh, with them and participated with them in the events of human history. Contrary to the Gnostics who would say that Jesus appeared to be human, John's saying, no, 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 he was human. He is human. These historical interactions highlighting the fact that Jesus was not merely a divine being, but also a fully human being. We know him, John is saying. And so with remarkable economy, in one verse, John is calling his readers back to his firsthand experience of this mystery of mysteries. The eternal God made flesh. Fully God. Fully man. And John is speaking not just for himself, but for also his Fellow apostles, when he says, we saw him, we, we heard him, we, we touched him, we saw his death, 
We saw his life. We saw his ministry. We saw his miracles. We saw his body. We saw him raised. We saw his scars. We looked and touched and felt and we examined. We saw it all. We experienced him. We know him. We know him. Do you know him? Do you know him? That's the rhetorical question that is undergirded by all that John is saying. Do you know him? Because this is the only Jesus who saves. This Jesus. Not some false, stripped-down version of him. Don't be confused by the lies. John's saying, guys, if it's new, it's not true. If it's new, it's not true. Don't believe anything that compromises any aspect or attribute of Jesus. Don't believe any lie or any new innovative message that compromises his deity or calls into question his humanity. You see, if Jesus is not fully God, then Jesus could not have quenched the full measure of God's wrath against human sin. And therefore, God's wrath still remains to be poured out. If, God, if Jesus is not fully human, as the docetists would say, then he could not have actually died in our place. He could not have functioned as our substitute. Only a human can pay the penalty for human sin, and therefore our debt of sin is still outstanding. So friends, do you see that if you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong? You see, it, a false Jesus will always lead to a false gospel. If you compromise on Jesus' deity, if you compromise on Jesus' humanity, you will end up with a man-centered gospel where you have to earn it, where you have to work for it. A false Jesus always leads to a false gospel. Now, throughout this letter, it, this letter is like cyclical. If you just sit down for like 20 minutes and read 1 John, you can totally do it. It's easy. Do it after church. You're going to notice that it's cyclical, that John kind of repeats statements, that he repeats themes. And because he's writing to these, these second generation Christians and he's concerned about their being comforted and he's concerned about the confusion that they're facing, he gives them these three repeated tests of life. Right? That, that should give evidence of true conversion. He wants them to know whether or not they're really saved. If they're not, he wants them to come to the true Jesus and be saved. If they are saved, he wants them to have assurance that they are. And so here are the three tests. He says, first, do you have love for fellow believers? If you don't, you should be concerned. Second, does your life exhibit obedience to God's commands? If it doesn't, you should be concerned. And third, and what we see here, what he comes out of the gate with, what, he, what, he just, what he's swinging with right from the get-go, the most important of the three, do you believe in the true Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jesus that is fully God and fully man, the Jesus who went and died and paid for our sins, the Jesus who said, it is finished, the Jesus who was risen, the Jesus who appeared, the Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Jesus who is presently seated on his heavenly throne, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been delegated, the one who is presently putting his enemies under his feet, the one who will return, the one who is risen and reigning, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that Jesus, do you believe in that one? And so what John is showing his readers is that true Christianity is both doctrine and devotion. 
doctrine and devotion. And if you don't get the doctrine right, friends, you won't get the devotion right. One follows necessarily from the other. And it all starts with Jesus. Amen? It all starts with Jesus. And so first John says to these children that he's writing to, these, these spiritual children, we know him. We know him. And because we know him, therefore, what he's going to say next is we proclaim him. We know him, therefore we proclaim him. Look at verse 2. John says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So here in verse 2, John speaks of Jesus as the life, and then doubling down on it as the eternal life. And John says that Jesus was with the Father, again emphasizing Jesus' divinity and his pre-existence. And this eternal life, this divine word, this second person of the Trinity, who has existed eternally as the divine Son, John says, was made manifest. Twice in verse 2, he uses those words, was made manifest. The life was made manifest. The eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. Those English words made manifest translate the Greek word phanerao, phanerao. And that word simply means to cause to become visible. To cause to become sense perceivable, to reveal, to cause something to appear. And so John is saying that at a distinct moment in time, God caused this eternal life, the creative power of the universe, the eternal son to become visible, to become tangible, to become sense perceivable and and observable, to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this eternal life that John speaks of is not a force, but a person. Where does John get this? From Jesus. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way and the and the and no one comes to the Father except through Yes. So John says the life was made manifest at the beginning of verse 2, at the end of verse 2. The eternal life was made manifest to us. He says, We have seen it. We testify to it, and we proclaim it. To testify is to bear witness. The Greek word is the same word from where we get the modern word martyr, when somebody bears witness at the cost of their life. We, we martureo it, we bear witness to it, we, we, test, we testify to it officially. Not only do we bear witness officially, but we proclaim it, we announce that this eternal life was made manifest. Now, I want you to see the sequence of actions here that John describes. God made the eternal life manifest in Jesus. Made manifest. We saw him. So we testify and proclaim. What John is saying is 
we proclaim what God has revealed. We proclaim what God has revealed. We pass along what God has made manifest. What we have proclaimed, what we have borne witness to, what we have spoken is what God has caused to appear. How do we know this is reliable? Because the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All the documents in the New Testament are attributable to an apostle, to an eyewitness, or to somebody that was immediately associated with them based upon their credible firsthand eyewitness testimony. The apostles provide firsthand accounts of their experiences with Jesus. We can trust their testimony. Just like those late second century Christians that trusted John when he said, we know him. Today, we can trust John when he says, we know him. And John is saying to those believers late in the second century, going into the, or late in the first century, going into the second century, saying to them, these believers who have been sold a bill of goods about secret knowledge and special salvation, only accessible to a privileged few, you know, salvation is only available to, to the right people who with the right connections and under the right circumstances and with the right knowledge can get access to it. He's saying, no, that's a lie. If you want to know how to be saved, just look at Jesus. If you want to know the truth, just look at Jesus. Because God has made eternal life manifest in him and in him alone. God has revealed it. God has revealed eternal life in him for all to see. We know him. We saw him. We testified to his appearing. We proclaim his good news. It is available to everybody without distinction. And so stay away from the cults. Stay away from anybody that says you need Jesus plus this other leader. Stay away from anybody who says you need this book plus that other one over there. Because it's all just the same recycled heresy. It's all just the same recycled deception. Stay away from cults. Stay away from anybody that says, oh, I have this new secret hidden knowledge. Come with me and I'll share it with you. Oh, it's only for the privileged few, and I think that you should be Stay away from that nonsense. Because John is saying that Jesus has come, that Jesus has done the work. He's made the way. Life abundant is found only in him, and it's available to everyone freely. Friends, if you want to encounter God, if you want to truly encounter God, you don't need to chase some guru. You don't need to chase some mystical experience, some secret movement, or any other recycled cultic nonsense. If you want to encounter God, all you need to do is open the Bible, and he will meet you right there. It's not a mystery. It's not complicated. It's very simple. God has revealed himself in his son, and his son has been recorded reliably right here. The writer of the Hebrews opens with this very principle, says long ago, at many times, and in, ma in many ways, our fathers, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. Amen. Friends, study your Bibles, and I promise you will know God. Amen. Study your Bibles and you will meet the true Jesus, not the counterfeit Jesus, not the, not the downgraded Jesus, 
that you'll meet the true Jesus, the only Jesus who actually really saves. One more thing before we move on from this point. James says Jesus is the eternal life. He's the source of eternal life. He's the embodiment of eternal life. What does is, what is, what is, uh, John record Jesus saying self-referentially? Like the most fi- famous Bible verse in our culture. What is the most famous verse? Like I saw it on Monday Night Football when I was six. This is, this is the NAZ translation. That means I translated this. Okay, this is what the Greek literally says. For God loved the world in this way, in this manner, that he gave his one unique son. There's no other like him. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What is that eternal life? What is it? What does that mean, eternal life? Forever, right? Eternal life. Eternal would seem to suggest duration, right? Ongoing, forever. And that's true. Eternal life implies that life through Jesus is life everlasting. Life that's not subject to the limitations of time and death. I think that that's especially pronounced in John 3.16. But here's the thing, friends. Isn't it true in a sense that everyone will have eternal life? Everyone will live forever somewhere. The Bible's clear about this. We can't fudge on this point. It's non-negotiable. Scripture is clear. Jesus is clear. Everyone will live forever in either heaven or hell. That's the terrifying reality that we contend with. So eternal life has to mean more than mere existing forever. Eternal life also refers to a quality of life that comes only through the Son, only through Jesus. A life characterized by a deep, intimate relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus. A quality of life that involves knowing and experiencing the love and the peace and the joy and the hope that come from being in a righted relationship with God. A relationship where there's no more adversity with God. There's no more enmity with God. Where we've been reconciled to him. Where we've been united to him. Where we are at peace with him. I think this aspect of eternal life is evident in John 17. When Jesus defines eternal life as this. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus says that something about eternal life is that we know God and that we know Jesus. Not just know about them, but know them. And so in this sense, eternal life is not merely about duration of life, but also about the richness and depth of relationship with God. And friends, here's where I want to encourage you. Because when we receive that eternal life through Jesus, when we turn to the true Jesus and we see what he's done, we put our hope and our trust and our confidence wholly and exclusively in him. God gives to us this eternal life. He gives us access to it. And this eternal life, which we tend to think of as being out there, way ahead of us, out in front of us, somewhere at some point in time, is really actually pulled into the present. 
It's pulled into the present. Because what we receive now through Christ as we're united to him by faith is peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. All the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When in our flesh and in our fallenness, we have none of those things. Eternal life offers to us true meaning, true purpose, a durable, abiding hope that can't be shaken, that doesn't evaporate with the circumstances of life. How many of you know have tasted this eternal life pulled into your present. I have. I know what it's like to to wrestle and strive and try to find meaning and purpose and hope in the bleak existence that this life is without Jesus. But then to look to him and to taste what is so sweet, what is so precious, a treasure, true meaning, true purpose, True hope, true love, true comfort, true significance, eternal life pulled into the present. So when John speaks of eternal life, he's he's referring to life that is both everlasting in duration, but also characterized by this rich, intimate, secure relationship with God through his son, where we get all the benefits of God, but even more, we get God himself. So John opens by saying, we know him, therefore we proclaim him. And next, he's going to conclude his thought by effectively saying, and we share him. We share him. Look at verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I need to do a little bit of a heat check right now. How many of you are still with me? Okay, we're like 70%. I'm getting a C right now. I need to ask you that because I need radical focus. We're going to talk about grammar. I know you guys all woke up on Sunday morning and were like, I can't wait to go to church and talk about grammar. It's going to be so exciting. I don't know if any of you noticed, but our entire text today is only two sentences. Verses 1 through 3 are one long, complicated, theologically thick sentence. Verse 4 is the second sentence. John wrote this letter in ancient Greek. Ancient Greek is very different from modern English. Modern English, word order matters. I hit the ball, right? Like, you know, subject, verb, object. Not so much the case in ancient Greek. And so what I want to point out is that the main verb of verses 1 through 3, which form one long sentence, doesn't appear here until verse 3. I was like reading this and studying this week, you know, and like reading, reading, finally I get to verse 3. I'm like, oh, there you are, main verb. Hiding out here in verse 3. Nice to meet you. What's the main verb? John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. We proclaim. We proclaim also to you. That which we have seen and heard. Notice what he does here. Um, The object of the verb is that which we have seen and heard, 
right? We as the subject, meaning John and his fellow apostles, proclaim as the verb. We proclaim that which we have seen and heard. Are you with me? Notice how John puts that which we have seen and heard in front of the subject and the verb, in front of. What John is doing is significant. He's foregrounding Jesus. He spends two verses talking about Jesus. And then in the third verse, he still foregrounds Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, until finally you come to the main verb, we proclaim also to you. Jesus comes first. We come after him. You see, it's all about Jesus. That's the point. It's all about Jesus. John is pointing his readers to the true Jesus, to the real Jesus. And he says, we proclaim the real Jesus to you. And now here comes John's motive. Why? What are the two? There's two whys here at the end of this passage. One in verse 3 and one in verse 4. What is John's motive? What is his purpose for, for proclaiming, not just himself, but on behalf of all of his apostles, many of whom, all of whom probably have graduated to glory by this point? John signals why he's proclaiming Jesus to them with two words, so that, so that. Look at what he says. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John proclaims Jesus so that his readers, so that we might have fellowship. Fellowship with one another as fellow believers and fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Horizontal fellowship, vertical fellowship. Do you see that? Now, the word fellowship has kind of lost some of its meaning uh, in like Christian culture today. It's been watered down. It's kind of been debased. So when, when, you know, when I say the word fellowship, like, let's, let's go have fellowship, brother. Like, what do we think of? We think of like going and getting coffee together. You know, I think of my relationships with my non-Christian friends in terms of friendship. And I think of, you know, relationships with my Christian friends, like Matt over there, as fellowship. Like, Matt, let's go hang out and watch our boys play Little League. We actually do that. You know, and I tend to think of hanging out with Matt as fellowship, whereas one of my non-Christian friends as just friendship. Fellowship certainly includes friendship, but it goes a lot further than friendship. The English word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. Many of us have heard this before, koinonia. And a koinonia is a partnership. It's a close association. It's a, part it's a mutual participation. It's a sharing of, of having something essential in common. We could think of as a fellowship as a sharing in a common life. Sharing in a common life. Well, when we have fellowship with one another, what we share most immediately is him. We share Jesus. And as beneficiaries of Jesus, we share the eternal life that comes through him. And we're, when we're saved by Jesus, and we, when those of us who are once far off are brought near, we share fellowship with God. We share life with God. And so for John, this koinonia, this fellowship, refers to a healthy, abiding, close, partnering, flourishing relationship with God and with others. And so John is saying that when we look to the real Jesus, when we have faith in him, that that faith leads to fellowship. Faith leads to fellowship. Faith in the right Jesus leads to it, produces, brings with it a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus and with each other. We've all been purchased. We've all been redeemed. We've all been brought near. We've all been given new life and new hope and new purpose and, 
in all of the things that come with salvation. But most of all, we've all been given Him. Amen? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you have fellowship with God? By coming to Him through His Son. By looking to his true son. Only through, true, only through the true Jesus do we come to God. Are we reconciled to him? Do we have fellowship with him and with one another? And so believing the truth about Jesus leads to shared life. Not only with each other, but also with God himself. The apostle Peter wrote it this way. Man, I got to go fast. Apostle Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, listen to this, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, partakers of the divine nature, you may share eternal life, partakers of divine nature. That word partakers comes from the word fellowship. It's the koinonia-ers. You will become koinonia-ers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. To have fellowship with Christ is to have and share his eternal life. And friends, we have fellowship with one another, right? We share Christ. But if you pay attention to what John is saying, we don't just share Christ, we also share in Christ. Think about that. Fellowship means that we are never alone. How many of you have been lonely in life? You see, true fellowship means that we're we're never alone. We always have each other and we always have the Father and His Son who ministered to us by his spirit. I was thinking about the significance, the weight of fellowship as I was meditating on this passage this week. And I was thinking about you. I was thinking about us. And I thought, do we treasure each other? Do we treasure our fellowship? How do you view your fellowship with other, with other believers? Do you take it for granted? Do you lean into it or do you lean away from it? There's some sense in which John is saying that our fellowship is not just with each other, but it is also with God through his son. They're conjoined. They come, it's a package deal. Horizontal fellowship comes with vertical fellowship. And if that's the case, wouldn't it follow that to lean away from fellowship with God's people would also be to lean away from fellowship with God himself? How do you view God's church as messy as we can be sometimes? And friends, if fellowship is the answer, God's answer, to loneliness in this life, then joy is his answer to emptiness in this life. Look at how John concludes his prologue in verse 4 with one final so that statement. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And now he's just finished talking about 
fellowship. So that joy is not just he and the apostles, but now that joy is a shared joy. It is a, it is a joy that extends to us also. Not just his readers at the end of the first century, but also us as readers 2,000 years later. And so John opens this prologue with Jesus so that we might have fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And now John closes his prologue by remarking that he writes these things. In other words, he writes this letter so that our joy may be complete. Joy is the byproduct of fellowship with God and his people. Joy is the byproduct of fellowship with God and his people. How many of us have ever chased happiness? I have. Yeah. That chase never ends. Happiness is elusive. It is not durable. Happiness is spurious and fleeting. As soon as you think you have it, it just passes through your fingers, right? But not joy. There's a joy that John says can be made complete. A joy that is, that is durable. A joy that is lasting. A joy that satisfies. A joy that can be filled or, or fulfilled. And that joy comes through fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. A joy that doesn't diminish when cancer comes knocking on your door. A joy that doesn't disappear when the pink slip is in your inbox at work. A joy that sustains when you lose your son. A joy that carries. How many of us have known that joy? There's a paradox to the Christian life. Jesus says, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says that whoever comes after me will find life and life to the what? The paradox of the Christian life is that Jesus calls up to take up the cross to find life. Take up the cross to find life. The cross is an instrument of death and he went to it. Take up the cross to find life. Friends, when we come to Jesus, the best thing that we receive is him. The best thing that we receive is him. And when we receive Jesus, when you truly look to him, and when you meet him, and when you know him, and when he receives you, what happens is a joy springs up in your heart that can't be taken away, wiped away, or put away. When you truly experience fellowship with Christ, then you know what those words mean. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Where does that phrase come from? It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Nehemiah chapter 8. When Nehemiah tells the people of Israel to go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared, this day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And those words are set in the context of the people of Israel rediscovering God and rediscovering God's word and rediscovering God's law and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles after God has brought them out of exile. He's brought them back to the land. He's, he's brought them back from the nations. And the joy 
that comes from their shared, mutual, restored relationship with God, from their fellowship, and from obedience to his word, that joy becomes the source of their strength and their encouragement. Well, guess what, friends? God has brought us out of a worse exile. He's brought us out of a worse exile. And he's given us an even greater joy. And he's given us both by way of his son. Let's conclude. Remember Tom? Tom believed flying was dangerous until he knew the truth. The truth changed his beliefs, which in turn changed his behavior. Truth is a powerful thing. John opens this letter by telling the truth about Jesus. Fully God, able to quench the wrath of God. Fully man, fit to be our substitute. And friend, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet known Jesus, but you're hearing about the true Jesus for the first time, I want you to know that this is what he has done. He's the only one fit to pay for your sins, and he's paid for them fully and finally, so that all you need to do is look to him in faith, acknowledge him, put your hope and your confidence and your trust in him. And what does he give you in exchange? Eternal life, forgiveness, pardon, cleansing. You don't have to work because he worked for you. Oh, sweet exchange. Jesus is real. His words are true. And so, friends, believe him. Believe in him. I leave you with the words that Jesus spoke to the believing Jews from John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word where we meet your son through whom we're reconciled to you. We thank you for the gift of this fellowship, of gathering together, of meeting with each other as we meet with you. And now in this fellowship, we're obedient to your word as we remember the work of your son. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.